This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm Chief Content Officer of a growing community of businesses called the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. This show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we'd love to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And let me emphasize, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, trust me, someone else listening to this show is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. Back with us today to help answer those questions is one of our regular guests, Jay Goltz, founder and CEO of The Goltz Group. Jay's based in Chicago, where he owns the largest picture framing shop in the country and several other businesses, including a home furnishing store. He's a manufacturer, a retailer, a distributor. He's the first to say he's made every mistake a business owner can make. And he talks to business owners about their challenges all the time. Welcome back to the show, Jay. Always great to be here, especially on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, Jay. Did you get me something? Yes, I did. It'll be after we get off the show, so we'll bring it into you in a big box. Excellent. I appreciate that. Um, so, Jay, you do spend a lot of time talking to uh, to business owners about their challenges, what they're struggling with. Um, have you? What, what have you been hearing lately? Any interesting? Uh, any interesting challenges you've seen? As always, I find that usually the things they say that are their big problems are really symptoms of another problem. So the new one is, you know, f- you know, five, ten years ago was, oh, the banks won't lend money. Well, the real problem is their financials weren't in the right shape to get money. So the new one now is, oh, I can't find good people. And then if I ask, are you looking hard? And and when I say never, I mean never once has anybody actually said to me, yes, here's what I'm doing and, and played it out. It's like they just think they're going to just show up at the door or they're going to put one little ad in Craigslist and then the perfect employee is going to show up, and it's just not that simple. So the problem isn't that you can't find good people. The problem is they don't know how to find good people. Always? Um, I would say more than frequently, but I would say almost for smaller businesses. You and I, I have say, had a similar conversation to this for, for years. I know you have, uh, you know, processes in place uh, that have worked for you. Have you, as the economy got better, have you not had any period where you uh, yourself have struggled finding good people? Oh, no, don't get me wrong. It's harder today. There's no question. I'm looking for, you know, I own, you know, a home store, Jason Home, and I, I need a truck driver to deliver the furniture. That's, that's a tough area. And it's gotten, yeah, it's gotten, it's gotten more and more difficult, and I keep raising the starting salary, but the problem is competing with a a company that's uh, delivering food service stuff on a truck, you know, is going to have um, can be able to pay way more than I can pay, and it's 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 definitely gotten more difficult. With that being that particular job, um, in other areas, you know, I hire people with art degrees to do framing, to sell framing, to consult with customers. There's plenty of people with art degrees looking for a job that that hasn't been a problem. So it's definitely been more challenging lately, but. There's no comparison between me 20 years ago. I, I know the game now. You've got to put, you've got to use one of the, those job service things and put it out there, and whether it's ZipRecruiter or Indeed, and get lots of resumes in. And the problem today is it used to be someone actually had to pay for a stamp and actually put it on an envelope and then actually have to put a little energy. Now they click a button, so you're getting people applying that have absolutely no background whatsoever for the job. So you just have to get used to, you know, going through more and more resumes. We're taking open calls today. If you've got a challenge, any challenge at all, give us a call. Let's talk about it, uh, especially if it involves hiring, uh, which Jay's talking about. Have you had trouble finding good people? Um, do you think you're trying hard? Do you think you're doing the right things? If so, uh, call up and uh, let's discuss it with Jay. The number is 844 844- Nine four two seven eight six six. 
So, Jay, yeah, on the point you were just discussing, there have been a rash of stories lately about people who actually the, – the market's so tight that people are taking jobs and then ghosting their employer. They don't even actually show up for the job because for, – for whatever reason. Um, have you had that experience? I, yeah, we've had absolutely – they set an appointment to come in for an interview and they don't even call and they just don't show up. It's, and I will tell you, there's no question – I've got 115 employees. I have a full-time HR person now, and it's a whole different game. I mean, this is all she does all day long, whereas when you're a smaller business, 5, 10, 20, you, the owner's doing it themselves, and, you know, it's not easy. And, you know, the question becomes, should the owner be doing it or should the owner delegate it to someone else that works there and whoever's doing it probably is not an expert at it. Should they bring in an outside? I'm not talking about a headhunter necessarily. There are companies out there. There are people out there who you can hire per hour that will help you with your hiring. So there there are ways of dealing with it, but... Um, well, you've, I've heard you talk at times that, in some ways, the owner is the worst person to be doing it. I would say um, there's three problems with the owner doing it, which is why, the I always say, the, the entrepreneur is frequently the worst person to do it. Why? A, the entrepreneur is probably outgoing, probably likes everybody, and that's not a great approach when you're interviewing people. You have to kind of have more of a, uh, a skeptical approach and listen more carefully. And a lot of entrepreneurs are better talkers than they are listeners, no question. That's number one. This all describes myself, I might add. <laughs> number two, um, they are, talk about their business. They talk about their mission, their vision, how they started. And, again, you've got to get the, 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 the applicant to talk. It's, a, it's trying to figure out where their head's at, not just selling the company. And lastly... They literally have 20 other things to do. They got to deal with the payroll. They got to deal with the, the, the product or service. They, they got lots of things they have to work on. So they're going to rationalize, oh, this person will be fine and hire them. And, and it's, it's frequently not. So um, it's a problem. And um, that's why a lot of entrepreneurs, including myself, just keep churning through people. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, something else that I know you uh, have thoughts on family businesses. Have you, it, it, you know, it, it's such a, a difficult area. There, there's so many stresses that it, you. I mean, it's hard enough to run a business under any circumstance. When you introduce the, the family element, it, it's so hard. Um, have you seen any interesting situations with family businesses lately? Well, I have another. You know, I've been in business 41 years, and I started at 22, and I've been. I've been in five big business groups over the years, um, you know, with 12 other businesses. You meet each other's business. So I've really had an inside view of companies like, you know, under the sheet, stuff that you would only know if, I mean, these are like open book. They, they, you go through their businesses, and I have seen many, many extremely difficult basically borderline nightmare situations with family business where there's two brothers going at each other or a brother and a sister or the father and the kid or the father and the brother. And I, I've seen it destroy families, and that's not being dramatic. I mean destroy families to where they don't go to their father's funeral, they never talk to their brother again. And, like, this is not an uncommon story. This is unfortunately a very common story. And then now that I'm older... I have people in my age bracket that are trying to figure out what to do with their businesses, and for whatever reason, one of their kids didn't go into it or anything, but I know two different people that have daughters, and they brought their son-in-laws in to run the business, and in both cases, it just blew up, and the daughters won't talk to the father now, and it caused all kinds of, of, of grief in the family, so... It's everywhere from wonderful, everyone works together and makes money together, to nightmare and everything in between. But I will tell you, I've seen more nightmares than I've seen happy. Everyone's working happy together. I really have. Do you know what the difference is? Is there a magic bullet to, to solve these problems? Um, well, I have a couple. After all these years, I've, I've come to my own conclusions. First of all, we have to recognize only 30% of businesses get to the second generation. That's a pretty well-known fact. And if you look around, it kind of makes sense. I, I would say that I've seen two situations where the father and the son were going at it so bad. We're talking, in one case, it went to court. I mean, I mean bad. Going, and in one case... I happen to be friends with the father and the son because I knew them from two different places, and they would complain about each other and say the exact same thing. 
they're, they're both alike. He's a narcissist. All he cares about is himself. And they go through this whole thing, and it was really ugly and painful to watch. And so in some cases, I think it's just a matter of personality types where they just are too much alike. And then my newest observation slash theory, and even a theory, I think it makes sense, People that get married, that stay married, usually that, that phrase opposites attract. I would also say opposites work, meaning if one's real aggressive, it's pretty difficult to stay married if both of you are extremely headstrong and aggressive, so overly aggressive. So let's just say zero to ten. If you're a, a, a nine or a ten, you're probably going to marry a four, and it's going to work. A nine or a ten meaning you're at the upper end of the spectrum, four. <laughs> Uh, I don't know the exact word. Uh, aggressiveness, headstrong, independent—you know, you know, driver, whatever you want to call it. Got it. The typical entrepreneur's got to be pretty. You know, the meek might inherit the earth, but they're probably going broke in business. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever met a meek business owner. I've met lots of meek other people, which are all wonderful people. But the reality is. Most people to, to build a business that have to deal with all of the ups and downs that have to deal with all of the stresses of it are usually pretty aggressive people. So let's just start with that that you know theory or I don't even know if the theory. I think that's pretty accurate. Okay, so so they're uh, you know they're an eight, nine, or a ten, let's say, and they get married to a you know a three, four, five. The two together usually don't add up to more than fifteen in my. My scientific. <laughs> you have a, a scoring system to determine who will be successful as an entrepreneur. 20, yeah, I'm telling you, I've told this to people for 20 years, and after they think about it, people come back to me and say, you know, that does make sense. Like, is a nine going to stay married to a nine? I don't so, think so, because they're not going to put up with each other. I mean, it's going to be very difficult. So let's go with this theory for a moment. Let's assume that one's real aggressive and the other one isn't as aggressive. So let's Wait, let me stop nine. you for a second. It's obvious who you're talking about in a marriage. There are two people involved in, yes. a, in a business. Yes. Who, who are the people that you're referring to whose scores have to <laughs> not exceed well, 15? No, I'm telling you, that I'm giving you the first half of the problem in family business. I'm just hold off for the payoff. Here it is. So the nine marries the four or the five. They have children. <laughs> What's the child going to be? Is the child going to be the five? Is the child going to be the nine? Is the child going to be a seven and a half? So genetically, the reality is some of the children born to this couple are probably not going to have the mindset and the will and the resolve and the drive to run the business. So this is why many people who don't have children that are just naturally have the ability or desire to take over the business. It's just, you know, is Michael Jordan's kid going to turn out to be the, you know, a great basketball player? I mean, probably a better chance there because there is more genetics involved with playing basketball, but in a business what are the odds that the child of the owner are going to end up having the same skill sets? And the answer is not, you know, not 90%. So I think there's a genetic issue that there's just, just because your parents owned a business, your mother or your father doesn't mean that you're going to have the mindset to be able to run it. So I think in some cases, these kids get pushed into going into the business and really should have become uh, history teachers or musicians or artists or accountants and instead got pushed into the family business and it makes for a miserable existence for everybody. And I, this is all over the place. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Jay Goltz. We're, we're talking genetics, um, genetics and uh, small businesses. Uh, along with running his own businesses, Jay speaks frequently with other business owners at conferences, at trade shows and peer groups. If you have a question about your business, if you're struggling with a particular issue, this is a great chance to talk to somebody who's been there. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our producer, Michelle Stucker, is standing by waiting to speak with you so you can call right now. So, Jay, if, you, if, if somebody's listening to this and they hear what you're saying and they recognize the situation you're describing, what's, what do they do? What's the answer? I think they have to be honest with themselves. And first of all, my number one thing is I grew up in the small family business. My, my mother, my father, my grandfather, my grandmother, my aunt and my uncle, and Edna – one employee ran my father's dime store with they, they, with my grandfather, my uncle. So this, this was the this was the family dynamic. And I watched my mother and my sister. My mother and my aunt didn't talk to each other for five years. 
they would go to the store together. <laughs> they, they worked they together every day, and they didn't yeah, talk to each other? Or four days a week, whatever it was. They would rotate, but they right. managed to get through years without talking to each other. And, <laughs> um, and then I watched the dynamic with my father and my uncle, and they were both son-in-laws. They both worked for my mother's father, so they were both son-in-laws. And I just watched the dynamic for my whole life, and um, it, it, it wasn't the worst, but at times it was the worst. And I would say I always, when I started my business, I always said to myself, I will never hang my business on my, head, my, on my kids' necks and go, I built this for you, that whole routine. I would rather sell it, close it, whatever. I, I, I've never... I, I'm not going to hang my kids with the business. So I think the first thing one has to do is recognize, is it really fair to your children? Is it really nice for your children? Is it really productive to to, to jam your kid into the business that really doesn't belong there? And I, I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, if the kid does want to be in the business, you have to assess, do they really have the skill set to do it? Because um, I'm sorry, but I believe there's some genetics involved to to running a business. I don't think it's, you know, nature or nurture. I think there's a whole lot of nature involved there. I think some people just don't have the stomach for it. And then the third part, once you figure that out, is what to do if your kid doesn't have the stomach for it. And that's where it gets sticky. But um, there's lots of family business counselors out there that deal with this all day long. And um, I think there's some answers. You, uh, you, you mentioned that you've belonged to uh, quite a few business groups. I think you said uh, five different uh, business groups. I went to the same one twice, so actually four. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that raises a couple of questions. First, what's the value in a peer group? It seems to me that um, that's a potential solution to some of the, the problems you're describing. The, you know, the opportunity to sit down and discuss these kinds of issues with other people who've been through them. Did you find that uh, useful? Um, you know what, just, you know, when you go into accounting or law or advertising, you go to work at a firm and you're with a lot of other mentors there that have been doing it for longer than you. And you, you get, you know, you get shown the ropes when you start your own business, at least in my case, you're out there on your own. I had nobody to talk to. And my father ran a dime, you know, owned a dime store. He couldn't help me with management. He couldn't help me with marketing. He couldn't help me with even the finances. So, so, you know, he had a manager and Edna, didn't he? He just had to manage Edna, one, the one employee, yeah. Um, and she was there for years, so he must have done a good job. Uh, God help Edna dealing with, just imagine being Edna, dealing with my mother, my aunt, and the whole <laughs> dynamics of the, the whole family thing. I, I was too young to understand it, but, and now I look back and I just think to myself, wow, she must have had a particular skill set to deal with that. Um, but anyway, so you're in a business group. And you get to see other businesses, and you get to see the, the, how other businesses work, and you get to see other relationships, and you get to see how people deal with things, and you get to see issues that maybe you haven't dealt with yet. So I found it to be extremely eye-opening as to how businesses work, because like I said, I've, I've seen up close about 60 businesses. And one of the things you learn from these business groups is... Explain that quickly. Um, when you say you've seen up close, in, in a typical peer group, uh, how close do you get? What, what do you hear Very. about? Once a month, you go to their business, and it's their meeting, and they go through their financials, and they go through their problems, and they lay it all out there. So you are their informal board of directors, and you're... There'd be no point to joining a group like this if you were going to hold back stuff. So people come up, come to these meetings, and they lay it all out there in front of you. And um, you hear all about the father and the brother and the problems, and the, it's it's all right there. So I've, I've seen up close these 60 businesses, and I will tell you the first thing I would tell people is everybody's not as successful as you think they are. That's all I can tell you. There's people driving the S-Class Mercedes-Benz that you think got money rolling and you find out that they're, they're not making money at all. I've just, it's been fascinating to see these businesses that have been around for years that you assume are really successful, and many of them are not, and they're struggling. And I always tell people when they go, oh, so-and-so is really doing well, I go, unless you're their accountant, you really don't know that. Um, I've, seen, I've seen many of them go broke. Um, I can think of half a dozen of them that I've watched the slow, painful process over two years of watching them go out of business, um, and frankly, much to their own, because of some bad decisions they made, some things they didn't do, some things they weren't dealing with. Um, I've, I've had some remarkable conversations with people in these groups that, I, here's just one off the top of my head. I, I said to the guy, 
his CFO was clearly a problem in the business. He was he he had an attitude problem. He we brought him into the meeting and he actually said to the whole group about they were borrowing more and more money and he goes, Well, you know, there's a personal guarantee, but it's not my name on there. <laughs> He's making a joke. It was the CFO who said that. Yeah, about the owner, mm-hmm. like it ain't his problem. Like, hey, the owner had to sign up, and he's laughing about it to this whole group. So the guy leaves, and I turn to the owner, and I said, you really think this guy's doing a good job for you? This is the guy you're leaving at the helm running your financials? I said, more than once we found stuff that he wasn't doing a good job with you. Do you really think maybe you should change CFO? And he said to me, I swear I couldn't make this. He goes, you know what? He's easy to travel with. <laughs> Not, what do you say to that? You not know, the so, first thing you're looking for in a CFO. No, and would you be surprised a year or two later that he was out of business? I'm talking so to I, Jay Goltz. If you've had an experience with a family business, uh, with a bad CFO, with a peer group, give us a call. We'd love to uh, hear your thoughts and concerns. The number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Uh, in, in these uh, peer groups, Jay, have, have you ever been in a group with a second-generation owner where you saw the kind of situation you were describing before, somebody who didn't quite have uh, what the, the yeah. parent had? Um, I'm afraid to say most, meaning these groups I'm in cost a lot of money, and, and or you have to hit $5 million in sales by the time you're 40. So I would say... 75, 80% of them were second generation businesses because just to pay the money to either be a member or to have the time is, is it's most likely going to be a second generation business. So I've seen lots of them and uh, some of them are really smart and responsible and took what their parents built and took it from a $5 million business to a $100 million business. And I've seen others that took the $10 million business and took it to a $5 million business and never seemed to grasp the, 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 what it is to be a business owner. And um, you didn't ask me this question, but I'll ask myself this question. Jay, Go for it. You've been in five groups? But no, that was, I, groups? <laughs> I was coming, Jay. Give me a chance. All right. Okay. So, so yeah, Jay, so how come you've been in yeah. five groups? That is an excellent question because after two or three years, I burn out because I can't sit through the same thing. It's like Groundhog Day over every year. Like, hey, Bob. I thought you were having trouble with that production manager last year. It doesn't seem like he's doing any better. Why is he still there? Why? Well, yeah, I got it. And they roll their eyes, and they, they just don't do what they need to do. And after a while, you're paying a lot of money to go to a meeting to watch dysfunction, and I, I burn out on it. So um, I've gotten some great things out of the groups, though. I don't regret being in them. But um, Do you think uh, they ever get tired of you pointing out the same problems that they're declining to um, fix? I'm sure some of them have, but I will tell you, I've, every time I've quit, people wished I wouldn't have quit. But yeah, I'm, I, uh, yeah, I'm sure some of them were tired of hearing because they don't want to hear the truth. And I, I don't know why I would join a group and sit here and, and placate people. I mean, there's stuff that sometimes people got to be called on. And the difference between being the first generation and the second generation is if I didn't take care of business, I wouldn't be in business. Whereas, if your mother or father did a really good job setting this business up and has some exclusive distributor relationships or has whatever and a big customer base, the, the kid can take it over and, and run it for 20 years and maybe keep it together before it falls apart. But um, they, they, it's, it's very different being the second generation. And like I said, I've been with some really smart people that took a little business and turned it into a big business, and I've been with people that – they, the, the parents didn't do them any favors or themselves any favors by putting their, their kid in charge of the business, and um, it's just the way it is. If you have a question about your business, we're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Jay, after observing these situations as often as you have, have you come up with a theory? I mean, what, what stops someone from taking action when lots of people around them are telling them, they got to do something. They got to address this issue. Why doesn't it happen? I just think that some people just don't. First of all, there's fear and there's hunger. Now, when you're in business and you start it yourself and you know that if you don't take action, you're going to lose your house, that's a big motivating factor. You know, there's an old saying, the sight of the guillotine sharpens man's, a man's mind. <laughs> when you're going to lose your house, if you don't do what you have to do, you somehow 
you just get the courage to do what you need to do. Now, if your parents started it and they died and left you $7 million and you've got this business and it's making some money and you're not going to lose your house if you take action, I don't know that they take action or they just don't have the stomach for it. I've just seen people go broke that just didn't hit. I did a speech one time and I was... I did my normal speech about sometimes you have to fire people and it's unpleasant, but it's part of the job of being the boss. And this guy comes up to me who's in his 50s, and he looks at me and he goes, you know what you just described is what I'm going through. My office manager is just killing me. You know, she's 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 not good at it, and the, the morale's terrible in the office, and I, I need to get rid of her, and thanks. You gave me some I, – I need to do it. So I happen to run into him six months later somewhere, and I recognize him. And I go, oh, how's it going with that? office manager he looks down his shoes and he says yeah i gotta do something about that (laughs) i I, 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 this is what goes on in business how many people do things that are bad for themselves and just never stop that just because they don't have the stomach the courage the i i don't know what to say i it surprises me but like i said i think one issue is if you're not going to lose your house or starve maybe there's just not enough there isn't enough pain to overcome the the pain of having to do something unpleasant, like firing somebody. So you know that, that's an interesting twist on it because I I often ask business owners uh, about how they got their company off the ground and you know what kind of risks they uh, took. And, you know, how did they raise money? Did they borrow money? If they borrowed money, did they uh, use their their own home as collateral? And, and I've always thought, you know, that's just so much to ask of somebody. Um, and, you know, my thought as a non-entrepreneur is that there's just got to be a better way than having to, to risk your house. But you're kind of saying that that's part of what makes someone successful. Yeah, I'm saying it's because of that pain that most people won't do is what separates people that go into business. Everybody can talk about it, but it's the one that's willing to take the risk and do what they need to do. And some people won't do that. Uh, some people, you know, stick it out and get into medical school and go through that grueling process. I'm a doctor. It's, it's like in any successful thing. There's there's dues you have to pay. And as an entrepreneur, one of the dues might be you have to take risk. And it's not that you like it, but you, you accept it. And, you know, that there are people that are not entrepreneurs, you know, they talk a good game, but they don't have the stomach to go ahead and borrow money. Or I've had people ask me at speeches, they'll raise their hand and go, Jay, how can you, you know, borrow money without having to sign personally? And I just laugh. I mean, and when you figure that out, call me, I'd like to know. Um, <laughs> I had a guy tell me one time, I, I really like to tell people the truth so they know what they're getting into. I go, I have to tell you, when you get done with your business proposals and your bank, you know, making a presentation. At the end of the day, the bank really wants to know one thing. Where's the collateral? And when you get them with all the billboards and the ads about, we're the small business bank, yeah, where's the collateral? So I go, they're going to want you to sign. So this guy in the back raises his hand. He says, Jay, I've been doing business with the same bank for years, and I I didn't have to sign off. I didn't have to, to use my house as collateral, and I got a $50,000 loan. I said, really? I said, you own a house? Yes. Does it have some equity in it? Yes. Did you sign personally? Yes. They have your house as collateral. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it, that's that's what it is. It's about but, Jay, you've been doing this for a long time now. You have a substantial business. Uh, you, just, you said 115 employees. You could get a loan today without using your house as collateral, couldn't you? Well, no, I'd have to have some collateral. What? I would not, either have the, to have the, inventory or receivables. I, they're not just going to give me a loan on my. But my if you have signature. a profitable company and you do have uh, those other forms of collateral, there's yes, a way to do it. You would it. have to have some form. Yes, you would have to have some. If you have enough receivables, or if you have, they don't love inventory. But if you're if you're sitting on six million dollars worth of inventory and you're looking to borrow a million dollars, you could probably get a, a, an inventory loan. But but there are some banks that still want a personal guarantee, but uh, you probably, as you get bigger, could probably wean out of that. But uh, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, banks don't make that much money as a percentage. They can't afford to take that much risk, so they're going to want to cover themselves, and you know, I understand that. Let's take a phone call. Brett in West Virginia, welcome to Mind Your Business. Yes, sir. How are you today? Doing great, Brett. How are you? Fabulous. So, first-time caller. Um, Thanks for calling. One of my the motivations for calling is I, I kind of have a when I say what a passion for it, but I've, I've definitely lived the small business, family, um, family owned, family in the business, um, 
lifestyle. We would have been fourth generation um, automobile dealers. So one of the things you talked about were, you know, the next generation not having maybe the fortitude to, to do the um, run the business, that type of thing. But one of the things you didn't talk about are a situation like that I was in where my family member really wasn't, shouldn't have been in the business, but kind of got pushed into the business at a young age um, over certain things that happened. And me trying to, you know, where you don't have, you have the title, but you don't have any power. And, and you're, you're, you're watching this slow boat going downhill. Brett, There's can you explain nothing. it? You say you have the title, but you don't have any power. Is that because right. so you, you know, an older generation is actually keeping control, even though you're supposedly right. in charge? Yeah, I'll be the general manager, the general sales manager, and and you make those decisions, and then they, they you know, go walk you out to the front of the building and say, you know, whose name's on the building? My, those type of situations. And, you know, those are frustrating. Um, and I know a lot of people that have lived that and it's uh you know when i hear i watch the tv programs you know where they're trying to change around businesses and i mean it's just it's a it's something that that i feel like that you know with with what jay's doing and there these all these businesses could be saved they really could with help what happened with yours brett i left after 11 years and it he finally went to the point where he had to sell it. So, Jay, if seven I'm hearing... Franchi- seven franchises and 300 employees. Wow. And, and common story. I mean, that's, that is a common common story. Yeah. But, but Jay, I think if I hear Brett correctly, part of what I, he's saying is, you know, the, the, <laughs> the fault doesn't always all lie on the, the second generation that doesn't have or the third generation or the fourth generation that doesn't have, uh, you know, the, the same drive. Um, mistakes can be made by any generation. Right. And I'm just saying any generation past the first one. It's, so in this case, or including the first, first one. Right, and it's it's giving up the power and, and 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 recognizing there's a problem. I mean, there's there's a whole industry of family business counselors out there that well, while you, you the guests you have on all the time um, that goes into family businesses to straighten them out. I mean, there's his name's blanking. Who, Lou Mosca. Lou Mosca, right? <laughs> Lou does this for a living. I mean, and and he says, isn't his famous line? It nothing really changes until the first person cries. I mean, there's always a crying family member. It's all pent up. It's it's a brutal situation, and it, there's no easy solution if the person still has all the equity and their their son or daughter was brought in and they won't give up any of the the, the power to it. It's like. This is why businesses don't get to the second or third or fourth generation. Every time it goes down by 70%. Only 30 get to the second, only nine get to the third, and only like five get to the fourth. I mean, it's, it's, there's not many fourth-generation businesses in America. Brett, I assume you were including um, your family's business in, in, you know, one of those, the ones you were thinking of that, you know, could have gone on, didn't have to be sold. Uh, was, was there one key turning point, one key decision that you think uh, led to that, the final outcome? No, it wasn't. It really wasn't one, one key. I mean, it was, it was, there was a final straw for me when I left. Sure. But um, it, it just was. The, the insanity thing, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. <laughs> I mean, it really was. I mean, we were just, and, you know, you have to, in any business, you have to be able to pivot and, and change and, and go with the times. And, and in, our, in our industry, it was changing. And we were still doing the same thing. And, but we, you know, but, and, but. Did you try to bring in a counselor to, uh, to sit people down and talk it through? He, he just he just would not he just would not adhere to that. I mean, it just he just wouldn't. I, I mean, I've tried. I, that's what it was kind of the final deal. I just we we, that, we couldn't get anybody to hear that question. What is your relation? Is did it did did you continue to have a relationship with your family members? It, so that po- at that point it was a little rough, but you know I decided that 
in that, in that time frame. I mean, I had family and kids and, and all that. So I decided that it wasn't going to be worth it to stay bitter. So after that, and now, um, even though he is just difficult to deal with, it, we I see him every day and talk to him every day. And, yeah. and my kids, my kids have grown up with him, and we went, we had a, a sport that we did together um, that he went for the last 15 years, and we raced all over the United States. So, you know, those kind of those those parts you can heal. It's the the stuff that you can't get back. You know, it's, it's difficult. I have to tell you, hats off to you for salvaging your relationship, because I'm telling you for a fact, I'm still haunted by a conversation I had with a guy 30 years ago. He was about my, we're both 32, let's say. I'm in a business group with him, and I know he, he's in a family business, and he's trying to get bought out by his father and his brother because it was going, it was, he wanted to get into something else. And I said, and it was getting really ugly, and I said to him, Boy, this must be hard on your mother. And he looked to me, and he looked at me, and he had two little kids. He's got like a, I don't know, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And he looks at me, and he goes, "My mother thinks I'm a worthless piece of garbage and never wants to talk to me again." Ouch. Ouch. Uh, now, it's thirty years later. I haven't seen him since. I did look him up yesterday. Frankly, I'm curious to see whether he ever got to be- together with his parents again. But I got to tell you. I know four other people who no longer talk to their parents, who don't talk to their brother, that didn't go to their father's funeral. It's just, it's excruciating to watch. And all under the banner of family business. And that's just, you know, it's not always pretty. But good for you for for being smart enough and emotionally intelligent enough to salvage your relationship. Yeah. Um, We've got to take a break. But, Brett, thank you very much for your call and for for sharing your story with us. Really appreciate it. Uh, We will be back in just a moment. If you've got uh, thoughts or concerns about any of these issues, uh, please give us a call. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We'll have more with Jay Goltz in just a minute. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman, and this is Business Radio powered by the Warden School on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Here again is Lauren Feldman. Welcome back to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with Jay Goltz taking your calls. Jay's been building his business for decades, and he's got the scars to prove it. On Twitter, he's at JSmallBiz. If you have a question or a comment, our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Let's take a call right now from Bobby in Georgia. Bobby, welcome to Mind Your Business. Uh, thank you. Quick question. I just wanted to uh, have you guess the weigh in on the 401k versus um, small business loan. Uh, we were talking about personal guarantees and all that. And one of the things that I went through my mind is like, if I break my 401k through some of these companies like Guidant and Benetrans, you know, they help you break it without penalty, so to speak, because they manage the funds so that there is no, you know, they provide that guidance and you know, the government transparency and whatnot. So, uh, 401k borrowing from that versus SBA, uh, what would you recommend and pros and cons? Jay, I think I know your answer. Uh, yeah, if you I can, don't even, yeah. If you can qualify for an SBA loan, you probably want an SBA loan. Am I right? SBA loans, if you can get it, which they're not as people say, oh, there's a lot of paperwork. I, SBA loans are the greatest thing ever. It's one of the few things the government does that really, really helps small business if one can get one. I don't know if this is for real estate or whether it's for inventory or what, but there's some restrictions there, obviously, how to let you use it. Um, what is the money for? For small business, for like a franchise, you know, um, I could just borrow from uh, SBA, which they'll help me do, or uh, I could just borrow it from my 401k and not have that, uh, you know, like, God forbid, business fails or something, you know, I don't know the government or anything, you know. I I know, like, SBA allows you, like, uh, that that you can, if something happens, I don't want to have to, like, file bankruptcy or anything, you know. Well, if you take the 401, if you take the SBA loan and things go bad, you'll still have the 401k money, so you could then take that money and pay off the SBA loan. So I would think you'd want to spread out the debt, and I personally would take the SBA loan in a second, and uh, otherwise you take the 401k money and it goes bad, so now you don't have any money, and it's kind of the same difference. You're still going to have the 401k money. Okay, I, I didn't. Uh... 
Okay, I didn't know that you could borrow from 401k to pay uh, SBA because I think the government has certain um, this programs. You know, you have to borrow it for the business, not to pay off a loan. Um, I, 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 I'm assuming. No, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about what you were talking about. I was, I was, I don't know if if you're. This I, is news to me. You're telling me there's some program you can take the money from a 401k plan and use it for a business and not pay the penalty to pull it out. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. It's just a fee, like a five thousand dollar or something you pay, and you don't pay the regular, you know, the tax and all that. Because essentially, government is looking at it. You're investing in business, which is what you're doing when you're invested in the, you know, in the stock market, right? So oh, to the interesting. Your, your, I, uh, I I I never heard of that. Companies. I would only I would only suggest you talk to a really smart CPA to make sure that that's everything as it appears. But if that's the case. That's that's interesting because um, you're right. If you did the SBA loan and things went bad, then to get the money out of the 401k, you'd have to pay the penalty. So uh, that's interesting. I'll look into that myself. But I, I Bobby, have you have you that. gotten farther and far enough down the road on this to know how the uh, rates compare from yeah. the two options? Yes. Yeah. There, there's obviously if it's a 401k, there's no rate, right? You're not you're borrowing from yourself essentially so there's really no you're not paying any rate right so uh but you you have to pay a fee to the company that facilitates it right yeah oh yes yes it's like uh like whatever the maintenance fee what 130 dollars a month or something uh until you restore that money you know and you buy back the loan sort of uh you know you buy back from yourself and then you restore your you send it back to the vehicle that you borrowed it from that sort of like like ira or something um so the company you want to look up, uh, Jay, would be Benetrends and Guidant. I think these are the biggest, or probably the only two companies that that as you know that they help you do this. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I know a couple of people that have done it, and I'm pretty deep in that. I was pretty still pretty nervous. Just wanted to get your uh, feedback. What uh, kind of franchise are you thinking of buying? Uh, coding, coding school, like uh, you uh, know, like uh, after school coding teaching. And, and have so, you actually uh, applied for an SBA loan? No, I didn't. I know I can get it. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, actually, you know, a lot of companies help you, like even the banks will help you do the paperwork. For, you know, if you're, if you're talking about millions, it's probably harder. But if you're talking about just a couple of hundred or something, you know, it's, it's not that difficult from what I understand. So there's a franchise out there that you're saying helps people, that people come to this franchise to learn how to code. That's what that is? Right, right. There's a number of them out there now. Have you? I can only tell you this on the business side. I would be very. I don't know anything about them, so there's nothing personal about any of these. I would be very careful. There's lots of franchises out there that aren't great, and they've got the slickest, greatest salespeople ever, though. And I would want to talk to people that already have one, and ask them one simple question: What do you know today that you wish you would have known before you bought it? Because I've had experience with. With a framing franchise, someone called me one time because in the framing industry, I'm like the big name. I you know speak at all the shows and such. So they called me and they said, "What do you think about buying a franchise?" He said, uh, "I've got kind of an odd thing. I, I called, I called a few franchises that owned them, and I asked them, um, are you happy you bought the franchise?' And all three of them said, "Well, I'm not really making money, but I'm not sorry I bought it." And he couldn't figure out the riddle, why someone would say that. And I said, well, here's an easy one. They're still in denial. They are telling themselves that because they want to believe they should still be in business. But they're the ones that regretted already closed their stores. And those three people they talked to are probably out of business now. So people buy these things. They rationalize it for a while. And then finally they wake up and go, yeah, this wasn't a good deal. Um, So I would just be careful before you buy a franchise. That is awesome. That is awesome. (laughs) That is so awesome, uh, Jay. I, I love listening to whenever you are you're on the show as a guest. Uh, you, you know, you you speak from a lot of experience, obviously. Uh, one. So on that note, I just wanted to say that this franchise is going fast and furious, and uh, I think that's exactly what they're doing. They don't know. I think they're way over their head, but they have very very slick marketing and everything. And uh, it's obviously a kids' business, education business. Right. You know, white uh, white space, so to speak. So everybody wants to. Okay, it's very gravitational, and it pulls people in. And then uh, before you know it, now they 
no, like this is not a mature space uh, right. as a as a franchise. You know, a lot of uh, moms and pops are doing it and doing it well, but as a franchise, it's like, oh, you know, there's so many painting franchises out there, so let us, the place is fragmented, so let's create a painting franchise. But uh, then you create all this overhead, and people don't want to pay the money and all that. So when, when you yeah, say, no. what are you referring to when you say Fast and Furious? Are there, there are lots of these franchises under different names? This type of franchise opening up uh, in your area? Oh no! Uh, yeah, they, that too. But also this particular one, um, uh, Code Ninjas. You know, they have uh, they just started uh, like about a year and a half or so ago, and uh, because and there's not much data out there to validate their model, but it really all just sounds very great. And there's like 300 of them under contract now, and they're just very moving very fast. I guess uh, for I don't know, um, but time will tell. But let's see. I read an article in a magazine one time about three ex-executives of this one company that got laid off, and they all bought a printing franchise, and they would meet every quarter to talk about how business is. So this went on for about a year or two, and finally one of the three guys starts crying and says, I'm about to lose everything I have. I'm losing my house. Business is bad. And the other two said, oh, I thought it was just me, and nobody wanted to tell the truth to each other because they were embarrassed. And so this story is, you know, I, I never, this was, I, just, I read that story 20, 30 years ago, and it just reminds me of the hype of all the franchising, and everybody thinks that everybody's making all this money, and, and they're, yeah, so truth is hard to come by. I think, like I said, if you call people and ask them, or you go face-to-face better yet, how important this is, I would go face-to-face, you'll learn a whole lot. Bobby, best of luck with it. Uh, give us a call back and let us know how you do. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you've got a question about your business or whatever you've been through and what you're thinking about doing, give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Um, so, Jay, I wanted to, in the time we have left, I wanted to get to something that you and I have discussed uh, that I've never seen anybody else talk about. And let's see if I get this right. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. But um, there are a lot of good reasons to hire good people. But one of the ones that you've pointed out to me, and I've never heard anybody else talk about this, is that if you actually do a bad job of hiring and you have to fire people, it costs you money in a way that you may not fully appreciate, which is every business has to kick into the unemployment fund, but the rate at which you do that actually goes up. You pay a penalty if you're firing a lot of people. Do I have that right? No, almost. <laughs> I wouldn't call it a penalty. This, this is real. Now, this is Illinois, but I think most states are the same thing. I'll just give you some quick math. The maximum unemployment you can pull in Illinois now is $418 a week for 25 weeks. So here's the scenario. You hire somebody. They worked at Sears Roebuck for 38 years. They came to you, and they said, oh, I'm looking for a new job. Then you decide you're going to give them a shot, and you give them a shot, and after two months you realize they just can't get used to your computer system or there's just something wrong that's not working, and you finally you, you, you have to fire them. It's going to cost you... And if they go on unemployment, it could cost you, they're going to pull about $11,000 in unemployment, and then the state basically marks it up about 30%. It's going to cost you about $13,000. But no one realizes it because it's not like you get an invoice one day from the state of Illinois going, oh, that guy you fired, here's your $13,000 invoice. No, what's going to happen is six months or a year and a half later, depending on where it is in the cycle, your unemployment rate's going to go up by 0.2% or something. Be, be careful when you say that, it. because when, when people hear the phrase unemployment rate, they think you're talking about the percentage of people who are unemployed in the economy, no, and no, that's no, not what you're talking about. compensation comp rate that you pay on right. your payroll. And you pay it on the first, in Illinois, you pay it on the first you know, twelve, like $13,000. So here's some quick math. The maximum rate now is 6.9%. The minimum rate is 0.75%, which means that, in my case, I've, had, I've only had one claim in three years, so I'm just about at the minimum finally, and I used to be at the maximum. So the difference between being at the minimum or the maximum is the following. At the minimum, you're going to pay $61 per employee for the entire year for, their, for the unemployment rate you know, compensation. It, if you were at the max, you're going to pay $897, which means there's an $835 difference for one employee, which means if you have 30 employees and you're not paying attention to this, 
you're paying out about twenty five thousand dollars for unemployment uh, compensation. So, and my question is, would you rather pay twenty five thousand dollars out to give compensation to people that you shouldn't have hired, <laughs> or would you rather give bonuses to people at the end of the year, or redo your cafeteria, or hire or redo- somebody else? or hire someone else, or just pay down some debt? And the answer is, obviously, we should be paying attention to this. And the interesting part is, I've done speeches to hundreds of people, and I've asked the same question. Who knows what your unemployment rate you're paying is? And I've never gotten anybody that knows. No one's paying attention to this, because it's just buried in the minutia of tax stuff that your accountant sends you. Here, you're, you owe, they, they, don't even, they don't even know what their rate is. They don't pay attention to it. Cause like I said, they don't get the bill, but it's extremely expensive. Jay, we don't have a lot of time left, but g- give us uh, a hint. How did you go from the high end to the low end? Four things. Sixty percent of it is be much more careful hiring. Put more ads out. Read more resumes. Interview more people. Check references. Check references. Check references. That's number one. That's sixty percent of it. My turnover is way lower with hiring. We're getting. We're getting. We've gotten way, way, way better with hiring. We usually hire the right person eighty-five percent of the time. Number two, in Illinois. In 30 days, if you get rid of someone in the first 30 days, you're not exposed. So it's a 30-day mark. If they're not good, we we unhire them and say, listen, this isn't a good fit, and we move on. Because people usually, if they're not good at 30 days, they're probably not going to be good at 90 days. And then it has no impact. No impact. Usually there's a couple of little loopholes, but almost, yeah, almost for sure. Okay, now the third piece is you have honest dialogue with people, and you say, Lauren, this is the third time I'm talking to you about this. I have to tell you, I'm getting really concerned that this isn't the right job for you, and I, I this is the third time we're talking about it. And then if Lauren's smart, Lauren's going to look for another job and make it easier on everybody. Um, if not, get to the fourth one, which... In other words, you're managing them out of the business. You're not firing yeah, you're, them. You're but... managing. You're just managing, period. You're having honest dialogue with people and getting getting them to either be better or maybe they should leave, but you're having honest dialogue, which many people avoid and don't have. And lastly, we've got, we've got all the rules, and we follow the rules, and if someone comes in late and you've documented it all, you can fire them and you can fight it. That's only 5%. I can't even think of the last time we fought an unemployment claim because we haven't had any, because usually if you do the first three things right, you're not having anyone make any filings on it, and I'm, you're talking to someone who went from... You're saying because you do the, process, the procedures right, you follow these procedures, you can, yeah. you can fire people who have to be fired, but they don't file an unemployment claim? No, you don't have to fire many people in the first place. And if you do, it's for black and white. You know, they had control over it. They kept them coming in late. You documented it. But, like, you can't fire somebody for just not doing a good job and win unemployment. That's not what unemployment's for. It's for things that are out of their control. So there's, it's pretty hard to win one of those claims. Um, someone could be stealing. You could come in at night, and they could be walking out with your computer, and you fire them. You can't win unemployment unless you call the police go to court and they get found guilty in a court of law, it's, it's pretty hard to win an unemployment case. You certainly can, but the best line of defense is stop hiring the wrong people. And that's, I'm not going to, it's, there's a lot of things you can do to, if not, number one, start calling references. Don't be lazy. Call the reference. Ask them, why is this person not working there anymore? And I found that people do not want to cover for bad employees or people that, so, so they'll frequently be honest with you. And sometimes they're not bad employees. They Jay Gold, your business. I got to stop you there. Will you come back? Thanks. Will you come Always. back? All right. Absolutely. Thank you once again for joining us. If you want to keep up with Jay, go to goldsgroup.com. You can follow him on Twitter at jsmallbiz. We're out of time, but we're here Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Um, If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at L Feldman. Until next time, I'm Lauren Feldman, and this has been Mind Your Business on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM 132. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.